Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Repeater from the 1990 album of the same name are Hans Dobratz and Matt Kiel, a couple of Fugazi fans from way back. Hans, Matt, how are you doing, guys? Doing very well. Good to be here. You guys, uh, you, you sort of wanted to team up to talk to me on this episode, and, and it seems like you guys just have a real shared fandom of Fugazi from way back. So, you know, I usually get started in these episodes asking everyone about their story, like how did you get into the band and uh, some of your live show memories. So I don't know if you want to say that sequ- sequentially or as a, uh, as a team, but uh, yeah, what, what do you want to tell me about that? Well, Matt, um, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're we're kind of of a slightly funny age where we saw Fugazi before there was a record. Um, and so we're just old enough for that, right? And the kind of very tail end of DC Hardcore. And remember seeing them at, I think, the Alternatives Festival, DuPont Circle. And, you know, obviously there's this giant buzz around Ian McKay and Kipachoto doing this band together. Um, and so it's one of the first times we just started going to shows, but we kind of knew the songs before it came out. And it was, you know, just this epic experience of like so many people coming together around it and then them blowing up and just kind of this generative buzz over a couple of years. Um, but I think the impact that they had on, you know, the deep parts of my identity and politics and everything is just, uh, can't be overstated. And to this day, I know that Hans and I still, often jokingly, um, but we still talk quite a bit about that impact and how formative it was for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess I was wondering, Matt, how did we know about Fugazi? Because I, I distinctly remember, you know, this, we got to go see this band because it's Ian McKay and Guy Pichiato. It's a <laughs> super group, but I don't know how we knew that. Because I, you know, I can was, I I can trace it that my sister's a little bit older and I was friends that's with was. some of the folks. Yeah, she was friends with some folks in Swizz, and so hardcore kind of came on the radar. And I think we were kind of aware of like Dag Nasty and Black Flag, and then somehow we became aware of Minor Threat a little bit later. And then of course that was sort of the the gateway drug, as it were. Um, but uh, we listened to Embrace, I think, before them. Is that right? Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, and so being you know being 12 year olds listening to this kind of like uh, you know embrace kind of coming of age in your 20s record always I always think is kind of interesting <laughs> uh, to be 12 years old and instead of railing out and skating to like Agent Orange we were listening to this kind of uh, you know deeply introspective kind of tortured exploration of what it is to be a 20 something man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and then yeah, I have this distinct memory of. S- my dad driving us down to the Wilson Center to see Fugazi, you know, probably the first time, and uh, and just how like kind of yeah transformative of an experience that was because I think that was my first sort of uh, uh, like witnessing of that kind of um, of that kind of uh, show and then the 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 whole the energy there. I think it was like with soul side and verbal assault. And I think there's footage of it on oh, yeah. YouTube. I remember you. So in between seventh and eighth grade, 
I remember you went to Wilson Center and saw even, maybe even like Moss Icon played. I don't know. But in there was that Christmas show, like right after Christmas, where it was like, yeah, exactly like you said, Fugazi and Verbal Assault. And your dad probably drove us. And, you know, it was that kind of thing about going into the city, you know, because I was from Bethesda and you were from Silver Spring. And mm-hmm. there was that kind of thing about going into like, you know, what a kid at that age thinks of as like dangerous you know, and it's really racialized and all of this. And so that was a big part of what I remember was kind of being in this place that was very other, but then going inside this other space that because of that tension became like so like generative and, and explosive and exciting. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was kind of a blessing to sort of have that be an early live musical experience. Cause like the, the, the con- the general sort of conduct of the audience. Like, I just remember, I mean, it was packed and just being sort of pressed in there. And then my brother was there who was like, I mean, he, he couldn't have been older than 10 at that point. And so like, just to be jammed in with all these people and everybody's kind of like looking out for each other. And already then you had this sort of sense of like the larger community around, around that band and around the scene there in DC. And um, yeah. And I, and I always, I mean, I think, often about, I imagine my, my father, because at that point he was, I mean, younger than I am now, sort of, <laughs> I just remember he, he stood at the back of the Wilson Center and watched the whole show and just was like blown away. And I think it was like kind of a transformative experience for him too, which he still kind of like fondly talks about to this day. So that was cool too, as well. I'm looking at um, the uh, page for this on the Fugazi Live Series website. I guess it's the one in uh, 1988 at Wilson Center with soul side verbal assault um so definitely yeah yeah there's like apparently this this book was written about in uh mark anderson's book dance of days and uh there's some interesting comments here like somebody is saying that there were like a thousand people there in a room that was fire coded for 50 (laughs) um so yeah sounds (laughs) yeah sounds fairly packed yeah, I mean, that was definitely really very much a part of it, you know, it was just kind of like, uh, particularly when the band started and it was Fugazi and there was so much interest, just like this pressure of human bodies, you know, but yeah. you never really felt at risk, you know, I mean, it was kind of obviously after kind of a lot of slam dancing and moshing and if anything, there was kind of like a lot of pressure and it was really, really, really hot. Um, yeah. But uh, when you're 12, I mean, that's just like, you've never really experienced anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's yeah. great to have you guys because, um, you know, I wasn't around back then. Like, and uh, the majority of the guests that I speak to, they weren't in DC at the time that this was all happening. Like, that's, yeah, that's that's been the minority of my guests on the show for sure. You guys are witnesses to history, and that's that's pretty <laughs> sweet. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure you know uh, that'll definitely figure into what we have to talk about in terms of the lyrics to this song and what it meant to be like living in DC at the time and how drastically different it was for people who can't quite appreciate that. Before we get into all that, I'm guessing you guys probably went on to see them many more times uh, over the years. Yes. Well, so what I was going to say, go ahead, Matt. No, no, I was going to say, and I think it may be the same thing, that Hans actually moved. So it's kind of a critical part of our, our story as friends and some of this stuff is that actually in after the end of eighth grade, which we have a very funny story about, which is related to John Staub and government issue, RIP, but um, he moved to California 
And so we would stay in touch and exchange mixtapes and things, but I continued to live in DC. Um, yeah. So that, so that was the summer of 89 that I moved to California and, um, and so, yeah, so, so like, I think you, in some ways our, our relationship with Fugazi diverged that, I mean, I was still very attuned to them and definitely like buying their records. And I think that maybe the next time I saw them was in Watsonville, which I would, cause I, I moved to Monterey, California. And so Watsonville's, you know, like 30, 40 minutes away from us. And at some point they came through there and played and, uh, we, you know, we all went out there. That might've been the next time I saw them and I would continue <clears throat> to try and catch him, but, but yeah, it's a, I, I, they, they sort of, Fugazi sort of, uh, sort of mirrors like the art, an arc of my life. So, cause, you know, getting into them when we did as kids and sort of realizing that I wanted to play music and be in a band and then sort of beginning to try to do that once I'd moved to California, sort of having some sort of success with it and then kind of like, by by like 2000 2001 like right before fugazi sort of stopped like kind of like also kind of having taken a pause on my music career it was really interesting to think back about about how much i had changed during that whole period of time and and i mean i guess because i was younger and those years are more <clears throat> dynamic when you're growing rapidly like that it was just it's sort of bizarre to hmm. to think that that band kind of covered that whole period yeah that's true for me too for sure so I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, strangely enough now, but um, I stayed in D.C. till I was 18 or 19 and then uh, left and lived in many, many places, including Los Angeles for about 10 years. Hmm. And then I spent recently, actually two years back in D.C., um, kind of randomly, and it was uh, in some ways actually probably very closely related to this song, um, kind of seeing this city in ruins, in a sense, gentrified ruins much later um and then more optimistically kind of seeing how these sort of little fertile pieces from the old kind of dc punk scene were still totally there and kind of vibrant in new places and that was kind of inspiring hmm. well um yeah let me let you speak on that as we talk about our song for today which is repeater it's a pretty big one um we've got a first of all we have a Top 10 live song on our hands, boys. It's the number eight, uh, according to my numbers, most played song that they ever did live with 408 outings. There's an interesting Washington City paper article about the song. It's called Nothing But a Number, A Live History of Fugazi's Song Repeater by Ryan Little. I saw that. Yeah, from uh, 2011. Uh, yeah, I'll put the link to that in the show notes for sure because it's uh, it's pretty fascinating reading and there's some things I'm sure I'll be quoting from uh, from that. Apparently, I I found that there's uh, I found a quote that, that apparently Ian MacKay said to Guitar World magazine, but I but couldn't track down the original source. Ian MacKay said to Guitar World that the album title and the song title "Repeater" is loaded on so many levels it's actually about how things in life repeat over and over but the title is also a rather obscure nod to the beatles revolver a record revolves and it also repeats a revolver is a gun and so is a repeater the title track is about kids repeatedly shooting each other and references the crack cocaine related violence in washington dc in the 1980s so um there's a little introduction um but uh 
Yeah, let me let me pass it off to um, either of you if you want the first word on talking about repeater. Uh, what do you think we should take as our first tack here? Well, uh, Hans, if, if you don't mind, I was I was just thinking about this earlier today that I remember. We, so we we attended we actually met because we attended a magnet school um, uh, in Silver Spring, and it was in the Montgomery County Public School System, and it was that kind of gross old. You know, basically, there's not enough. I mean, if, to be very blunt, you know, there's not enough white or wealthy people here, um, and so we are basically bust into this magnet program, and we kind of had a sense that this was messed up, you know, like to some degree. But I remember very distinctly that we were on the playground or the the fields one day, and these kids were pointing out to us this kind of uh, apartment building in the background. Uh, kids from the neighborhood, not kids in the magnet program, and telling us, oh, a PCP ring, crack ring, was just busted in that building. And that was kind of my very first sort of like real understanding of this kind of like, you know, drug war, drug trade thing happening around me. Um, And so whenever I think about this song, that's always one of the first things that comes to mind is kind of being of this age, trying to make sense of the whole world, but then also trying to make sense of this kind of like late, you know, drug related violence, racialized violence, all of this. And on listening to this song and coming in today, I was sort of blown away by the genius of it and kind of that there's these just extremely complicated, really quite brilliant layers um, that really make it kind of an extraordinary piece of art. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember that moment on the, at, at, at over there at Eastern. Um, but yeah, I mean, so for, I guess this record came out in 1990. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So by that point I was in California and, and I mean, obviously I had at that point a sense of, of the sort of, you know, I, I don't know what they if they were calling it the crack epidemic at that point or whatever, but but I, what I do, what I do remember in terms of like my own personal young adult reckoning with like, uh, you know, sort of violence and stuff with like that was sort of this, this, uh, version of it that was kind of parallel to like the, the emergence of gangster rap and like watching sort of like the, in California at that time on the, on the, even where I was on the central coast, there was a lot of gang activity and sort of like this really started really first hand, even for, you know, kids like me that lived in like the kind of nice part of town, firsthand sort of uh, experiences with that kind of stuff. So that was like, for me, more of a direct um, experience with that kind of violence. But in terms of the song itself, I'm trying, I don't remember what my feelings about this song were when it came out, but listening back to it now, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's such a t- like tightly formed song. And I guess Fugazi's known for that in general, but um but I was struck like listening to it on the headphones by, by just like how, how well written it is. And I guess that, that quote that you just had from Ian McKay, like uh, that's something I've been thinking about for Gazi more recently and thinking about Ian McKay and just sort of like how, how sort of broad, more broadly, I think he, his concept of some of these songs were than, the, than they're read, you know? And so this may be, maybe being one of those where mm-hmm. on, on the one hand he sort of directly points towards the subject matter, but then there's, there's 
at the same time, it, ha- it, it can hold space for these other ideas about just repetition and things like that. So that's sort of interesting as well, I think. Yeah. I, we, Hans and I, were, we talked a little bit before this, and one of the, you know, I think uh, like Goo by Sonic Youth came out probably not long after this, but to a certain degree, this is like probably one of my first exposures to like noise music. You know, I mean, I'd say Repeater, the, the guitar sound is like, you know, about as close to, it's one of the earliest examples where like they're really delving into noise and recording and the guitar is really rhythmic and really kind of, uh, you know, inspired by free music and things. And, um, yeah, that always really impressed me. Um, and so that that led to, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. What are you gonna say? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, it's just interesting. I, I don't think I'd ever really quite realized that I, I, um, I remember all these songs because I was still in DC or most of them from before the album came out. And when it came out, it was one of the big stories was like, Oh, NME is covering them. And you know, all the British tabloid or magazines, music magazines, like how big are they going to get? And, and so there's a lot of buzz when the record came out. And I remember it was kind of the first time in my life where I was like, Oh, I love these songs. And there's something about the way it's recorded that like, it doesn't feel like the live show, you know, it was really different in a way, but repeater was a little bit different where like the, I know this just sort of like depth and vibrancy and sort of just like, like incredible intelligence, you know, to how this thing was constructed and the artfulness of it was like really vibrant still. It still is when I listen to it, you know? Yeah. That, that turn also that it takes in the chorus where that's, there's that sort of like plucky arpeggiated kind of melodic, guitar yeah. line that i i think he's doing it's like, like that beauty the, the beauty out of nowhere right yeah it's really but that's really like that's really deaf that the ability to sort of wed those two things and in, in some way that doesn't feel kind of like um forced or uh you know awkward or whatever well and the way it ties into you know the song which is like i mean it's brilliant i mean it's just brilliant the way in which like it's this sort of narration you know kind of of being you know, I mean, it really, the narration could equally well as be about Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, in a sense, as it could be, you know, about someone slinging drugs, like, you know, in D.C. at the time. And whenever the jingle, that, I, I refer to that a little bit as like the jingle, you know, right. and sort of like when that jingle kind of comes in, it sounds like advertising, it kind of perfectly melds like this sort of ambiguity that's so carefully structured, you know, where you kind of realize that actually there's like multiple you know, sort of like multiple subject positions or voices at work in the song and you're seeing how they're related. And it's just, uh, you know, the greed or the kind of like self-interest and the way in which Ian McKay, you know, I think he's the primary vocalist, moves between them. I mean, it's really, again, just so artful. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I was sort of thinking about the voice in that song and, uh, you know, how yeah on the one hand it's sort of well i mean that's the thing that Ian mckay seems to do and and do fairly well sort of take on you know these these voices that like he's he does it in other songs as well and sort of um in some in a way that doesn't feel sort of like i mean i mean it's a way it's it's it risks being objectifying and stuff but somehow he seems to like manage to not be able to do that in this song there's there's both sort of a condemnation of of the the sort of sort of whoever's being spoken to but also the person speaking at the same time um and then there's that whole part at the end where 
where there's where he sort of steps back and makes this broader statement about about the uh the whole circumstance itself well the and the double meaning of we don't have to buy it you know right. i mean that's sort of like uh it, it was so kind of garish back then the way that there was this whole kind of like there are a lot of people who are like angry that like hardcore was over, right? And so you'd have these jerks like shout out for minor threat songs and stuff, and right. you know probably would read that as some kind of straight edge, you know, to try drugs. But like clearly, you know, it's this real assault on media and narrative and kind of like what we're fed. Um, that I always took as really inspiring. Yeah, I thought I think I read somewhere about this song, Emakai talking about. It, 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 it being inspired by a dinner party that he attended. I might be confusing this with him talking about another song hmm. where a group of, he was, he was going to have dinner with a group of friends that were living in a neighborhood that was, you know, in the process of being gentrified or whatever. And they were all sort of like talking kind of like, like anecdotally and almost like gossip, like about the, about the, the gunshots that they'd heard in the neighborhood and like him sort of just leaving the dinner party, just sort of being like really kind of like, yeah, I think you're you're talking about a story about the song Instrument, which actually does okay, really tie yeah. into this song a lot though. There's a lot of overlap there. I like it's interesting that yeah, he has themes on this song repeater that he goes on to develop more in instruments and I guess also like a Down City maybe uh, right. would be another one where some of these ideas come back. But yeah, it's yeah. it's like very similar the um you you've got two basically verses of yeah where he sort of assumes the role in each one of like a street kid who was involved in uh something shady and then and died uh, from some kind of right. you know probably gun violence and um yeah and, and you're right like it's it's interesting how it's um it's such a thin line to walk to be able to to do that without sort of coming off as appropriative or or something and right. it's not like uh, it's not exactly a sympathetic portrayal either, right? It seems like pretty direct, like the the, the speaker of the first verse is um, like a, a drug dealer who's like really <laughs> confrontational about it. The one in the, yeah. in the second verse is, you know, a, a robber shoplifter, something like that. Um, but I, I think, I think the, ultimately the point is each of those people, their death ended up meaning nothing other than a number and like the the person behind it that existed was forgotten um which is the the main idea like no matter if you want to be sympathetic toward the people who are caught up in like in all the the violence that was going on with the crack epidemic at the time it's um they're they're real people and with families and feelings and that's not how they're remembered yeah, it's it's also when I went back and looked to remember exactly when this was released, um, I noticed it's about three months after Marion Barry, the mayor of D.C., was arrested. You know, in the hotel room, yeah, crack. You know, and that was such a national kind of shame or sort of national embarrassment in some way. Um, but it really reminded me of kind of like how how deeply you know this was embedded, like how real it was. Um, but but I think it's interesting the way in which like you know like suggestion is kind of a good example of this that I think I've always sort of thought he really pulled that song off and it's an incredibly difficult thing to do yeah you know again walking that line of appropriative where he is I mean one thing I think I really admire to this day and then influenced him about him 
Ian McKay and the things he would say in interviews in particular, um, he clearly has such a well-formed ethics and he clearly thinks these decisions through um, and the way in which he thinks his artistic like kind of choices through and his statements through in a way that I, I always I pretty much without fail find provocative, you know, and generative for me. Um, I think he's just sort of really intelligent and can actually kind of straddle these questions that many of us struggle with um, in a way that's really um, deft. Yeah. I think he got better at it over time too. Mm -hmm. Also, there's just some great lines there. I mean, that whole, like, you know, the whole, that whole, that whole first verse It's you know, you say, I need a job. I got my own business. You want to know what I do? None of your fucking business. I mean, that's just like great. Like, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's great. a great sing-along line, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, like that's yeah. A, <laughs> yeah. even the sort of divorced from the context of thinking too hard about these lyrics. It's something that, like, right. when they would play this live, everyone sang that line. Right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> but which is kind of like a weirdly beautiful, you know, retrospect. And I, I may be reading too much into it, but I mean it sort of then forces you in that kind of singing along in this kind of pseudo post-hardcore setting, you know, where people do shout out and say these kind of like, I want it or give it to me, you know, kind of things, say these very kind of like self, uh, you know, say things like that. It kind of then actually forces you to notice, right. That you're kind of saying things that perhaps aren't that different, you know, than the way that the kind of like narrator is imagined. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that, that really came up um, when Hans and I were talking about this, too, was Gogo, because, you know, Gogo sort of remains, I mean, to this day, it's amazing, sort of so uh, not well known outside of D.C. for the most part. And I would say it just hit me in re-listening to this that, like, of all of Fugazi's songs, this is the one where the drums... You know, they're very different than almost any other song. You know, the ones that have the closest thing to a go-go beat. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that just blew me away when it's I also, noticed it, that, like, there was... Yeah, that... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's, I'm, as you say that now, it's also interesting to think about go-go itself, in a, in a way, being the vi- the victim of like of, like, g- gun violence and stuff. Or at least that's how I remember as a kid, like... I remember my friend's older sister going to to go go like clubs and stuff because she was she and then all of a sudden like all like all that stuff starting to get shut down because there were like I guess shootings at the clubs and stuff like that. So at least that, yeah, like it, that seemed to be part of like what maybe kept that music sort of regionalized or maybe not. I mean, maybe it was just itself like. But it was it was like really interesting too because I remember my bus when I went to Eastern we used to drive by the black hole or the ibex on um, Georgia Ave mm-hmm. and I remember talking about go go clubs like kind of with other kids and be like oh yeah they're really dangerous people get shot there and it's really crazy and it's just interesting like the degree to which in retrospect like you know coming from where I was you know as a white kid from Bethesda. You know, that's like, it was like pretty classic, like racialism, right? I mean, it's like pretty classic, like really seeing these places as different because they were black. Um, And obviously there is this kind of beautiful parallel path of go-go and punk in D.C. that sometimes crosses over and not not really that much, though, in a way. And uh, I always kind of felt like it was really interesting, you know, I I think it's really interesting thinking about how that kind of go-go thing comes out in this song more than almost anywhere else. Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, the, yeah, not only the drums, which are like so heavy on the toms and everything, but something about the bass line and how the bass line is integrated into the yeah. drum part is like so, yeah, like so, I don't know, Afrobeat or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could almost see a Go-Go cover of this song, actually. I mean, I could see the call and response as a Go-Go song, um, yeah, at least totally. in the first two verses, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I... um. I mean, if we're talking about the music, I, you know, I, there's, I think there's that Guy Pichetto quoted as talking about, you know, what he's doing on the song is sort of a, a sort of answer to like to the public enemy and, and in particular that song Rebel Without a Cause. And so I was listening back to that song and, um, and just thinking about like the, the, the corollaries there and, and how, interesting that is that and how like a interesting way of of a uh, sort of approaching that that was i i re-listened to that too rebel without a pause by public enemy and it's like uh, yeah exactly. I, don't, I don't know if you experienced it the same way but like on listening back i was like it's hard to listen to this song like that <laughs> that sample is annoying <laughs> like to, to listen to a whole song of that i don't know <laughs> did you feel the same way you know i i didn't but i i, I have this sort of fondness for I mean, there's something about that, like that Bomb Squad, Hank Shockley production that's just so impressive to me that I think like I'm, anytime I listen to it, I'm so enamored. I mean, actually I was, I was sort of looking up the samples on that and they're, you know, they're, they sample a Jefferson Starship drum break, like in that song, Whoa. which like, it's just like, what? <laughs> like, how did that happen? And it's like, you know, cause the other main beat in there, I think is Funky Drummer from James Brown, which is like sort of more of an obvious, yeah. Um, move you know but uh yeah no i i know what you mean but i mean I it's definitely it's deliberately confrontational for sure like sure. it's so yeah, high yeah. in the mix and it's just like really in your face and uh yeah to quote gee from that uh, article I, I mentioned before uh, he said uh rebel without a pause would be specifically one song we all look to the main ascending whistly sample on that one was so nuts it's hard to remember now how hardcore that song sounded when it came out but it was really shocking and oh, so yeah. badass but then he actually talks about how he did it too, which is really interesting, right? And that same yeah, he's like, uh, I and I think Ian would do this too at some points on the song, but like they're basically picking behind the bridge or like that extra length right. of string, which was also as as you mentioned a famous Sonic Youth trick. But he was saying that the Rickenbacker in particular had this like a uh, noticeably larger yeah. space there, yeah, which yeah, made yeah. it which made it pr- particularly. Um, capable of doing uh, things with that that maybe other guitars didn't which i thought was kind of interesting you know yeah i mean I, the other thing that's that's so cool uh, that's so cool just because in terms of thinking about the materiality of a rickenbacker and then sort of making the connection a little bit to some of what pe was doing with techno or the bomb squad or you know other people as well but like kind of just actually messing with technology yeah and the idea like i mean i can see definitely how kind of like what gi was doing in the early days of the band i think i think i've read in various who talked about like kind of emulating Flavor Flav, like in a way, you right. know, trying to be this kind of hype man and experimenting with that. But I've never thought about the kind of like material crossover. Like that's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting because like one of the things that's noticeable about like the Bomb Squad production and Hank Shockley, like if you listen to interviews with him and stuff, like at that point with sampling and stuff, I mean, that was a, it was a very sort of laborious sort of, you know, hands-on like, cutting and pasting kind of process so it was much more tactile and and sort of 
you know, probably had more in common with the, with the way that like you would mess around with a guitar than sampling, you know, became, later did when it became more of a sort of, you know, process of, you know, computer manipulation and stuff like that. One, one other thing I was thinking about, you know, well, one of the things that I think about with rap a lot is just how, how, because I, because I think about lyrics a lot. Um, it's just the, the one of the, the things that, that, rap has done really well but also provides as an opportunity for artists is is so much room for words and you know they're, they're just i don't i mean it's hard it would be hard to find a rock song that that if you were to you know just do a numerical count like would be any come anywhere near even your average rap song i mean yeah. maybe like some maybe some like really long bob dylan song or something like that but so like if, when i was listening to <laughs> rebel without a without a pause like um I was thinking about that because I was thinking about Ian Ian McKay's lyrics and how, you know, in some ways the song, like in some ways, like Brendan's drums also seemed like he, he was sort of kind of doing a, like something along the lines of like the funky drummers sample. But but then like, but nonetheless, like the song was still constricted in the way that a rock song is so that Ian's lyrics are still sort of, you know, he still only gets these kind of like, you know, simple like sh sort of four line stanzas and stuff which i mean he does which he uses really effectively but it's just it's uh that's one of those things that like m punk or rock music just can't really do in the way that rap can i've always thought and something else i think that contributes to the somewhat hip-hop feel on this song is basically ian would like not play guitar at all pretty much during the right. verses and the chorus yeah. like he he played some in the intro just like making crazy noises and eventually at the very end he came in with those like signature fugazi octave chords um but before that he's just like not playing he's just delivering the vocal and letting Guy do the 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 crazy airsats uh, uh public enemy sample <laughs> yeah that's cool it's i noticed that watching i watched a few live clips and i don't think i had put that together yeah. before where i was like oh yeah he's he's really not playing a whole lot in this song yeah but it's also i think it's really interesting that i mean you know maybe 10 years after this we saw kind of a quite terrible um you know not like new metal you know rock hip-hop and it's it's kind of interesting to me in some way that like there's some sort of like restraint or kind of like uh, productive appropriation, right, or sharing or sampling itself from hip hop. Like on, a, like on a, on a conceptual level, there's like a sampling of hip hop, right, but it never emulates it exactly, and so it's actually kind of recreating the inspiration in a new form rather than becoming, you know, one of these. I can't think of a good example, but like maybe Limp Biscuit or something like this. Yeah, or yeah. Or there was all. Um, I feel like nobody would listen to this song and be like, "Oh, these guys are trying to do like rap in a in a rock context." It doesn't sound like that at all. But uh, right, yeah, if and you that's just right. look a little deeper into it. It has that DNA. Well, that's the genius, I think, of like what Gee was talking about, you know, and the, or not what he was talking about, but like his ability to apply those ideas. I mean, you know, I just think about that in terms of like making music on my own. It's like taking that leap from like being able to listen to something and recognize, Oh wow, there's something interesting here that, that, that I could take and do something with. And then actually being able to figure out how to do that and do it in like a, in a, in, a, in an effective and like way. as so, I mean, that's, it's really tough, you know? So that's, it's very impressive, I think. And, and I think just the, the kind of like, um, you know, over the years reading, and not knowing any of this when I was younger, you know, but sort of as an adult kind of reading interviews with these guys about sort of what studious 
musicians they were. I mean, you know, be it the, the Beatles or the Kinks, you know, with, with some of like Ian McKay's later projects, like, you know, how much they, like how carefully they listened, you know, like right. how much they studied music. Um, it just blows me away sometimes. I mean, kind of like how much uh, labor went into this, this, you know, beautiful project they did for, you know, 12, 15 years. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I've, uh, you know, as, as a, as an older, you know, person, as an adult, like, you know, think, thinking about the way in which for me, at least like often, like Fugazi sort of represented like this sort of, uh, like the a sort of law, like about what you did and didn't do, like, you know, ethically, but also as an artist and all this stuff. And so sometimes like I, as much as I love them and everything, they, I also allowed like these people to become like scolds in, in my mind, in my, like, or like sort of private totem scolds or something. And like, uh, and then you realize like sort of stepping back, like how sort of broad and vast their sort of interests were and how like how much they were pushing against sort of like limitation and, and structure and laws and stuff like that. And so, you know, that's, I think something that, that I've gained as a, as I've grown older and then. Yeah. So me too. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one thing that's fascinating is, I mean, this is still, you know, eight, 88, 89, we're very young, but like, you know, it's kind of like the, the beginning of sort of like, don't slam dance, you know, like, please like, sir, you know, you know, the kissing the audience, don't slam dance, you know, be mindful of his bodies. And, you know, there were so many people out there who would kind of mock this and sort of see Ian MacKay as this kind of like almost, you know, pseudo Christian figure for this kind of thing. And it was only in actually watching these videos recently that I really was like, man, that was, that was bold. Like that was so risky to do that and have an entire audience who are going to give you flack for this. And I just saw it as much more of a kind of act of bravery than any kind of admonition, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, so, but I, I know exactly what Hans is talking about with the kind of, you know, these, they also were older than us and we wanted to play music. And so there was a way in which the totem scold of kind of like, on the one hand, Fugazi set the rules and they're so powerful that like you, you wanted to sort of felt you had to follow them. But like any adolescent at some point you kind of, or perhaps any adolescent, you sort of felt like you wanted to push back or explore other ways. And was that true? And, and sort of question that. So it's always interesting to me that, you know, much older now I actually come back and I say, no, no, like that made a huge ethical imprint on me. And it's hard to understand to hear those, the, the reason in that as an adolescent male in particular, because you, yeah. I mean, you feel indestructible and like in, in, in a sense, you kind of are more than we are nowadays. I'm sure you'd agree with me, but like, yeah, just back then the idea that you wouldn't mosh was like ridiculous. Like why not? But if you think about people who aren't in the same bodily circumstance as you are just being mindful of other people who are like, you know, they have as much right as you do to enjoy live music without being smashed. I mean, it's it's also funny though because you know we're you know we're kids we don't know anything and so we are also at this time going to like Safari Club which uh, you know Safari Club was like basically where the New York hardcore bands would come play and so we'd go see like Gorilla Biscuits or like Youth of Today and in some way like your allegiance or my allegiance was still always kind of like to this sort of whole Discord universe but you'd go and like dig seeing Gorilla Biscuits are bold and it was like almost confrontational really to kind of like Fugazi. <laughs> I mean it was like people who are like, we're still rapidly straight edge and we still mosh and 
you know, it's sort of interesting to kind of like go between those worlds and mm-hmm. see there were these people who are still like, we're going to keep old time hardcore alive and we don't do any of that. But we're still, our ethics are still very much about, you know, being drug free, drug free youth and that kind of persisting, you know, well, clearly Fugazi were in some way ethically maturing, I think. And so being a kid trying to make sense of all of this and, you know, trying to make sense if you want to meant to listen to hip hop and all of it. I mean, I remember a lot of confusion about all this. She gets so seriously, you know, and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, and then I think for me, like, you know, I, I mean, one of the gifts of seeing them when we did was that, and sort of being introduced into that world at that early age was that we, we, we learned, we sort of were trained like, like, you know, at those early shows that like to, to sort of, or not, not, I don't know if trained is the right way. We were we were exposed to a certain way of being, like in in the context of, of music and shows that, like, you know, a lot of other people, I, I like I realized when I moved to California or whatever to a small town in California, a lot of other people just didn't have. So then you have that whole thing of like when Fugazi got to be a bit bigger, and I saw this because I I sort of moved to this town where like I didn't couldn't find anyone that was into the same stuff I was in and sort of really was searching for a community and eventually kind of found people. But, but part of the process of finding people was like, I, I remember turning these guys onto Fugazi that were like metalheads and hanging out with these dudes that were like in, in every possible way, like, like not what you would think of as a Fugazi fan and like really probably wouldn't have liked a lot of the other stuff that coalesced around Fugazi. But for some reason that, that band was able to sort of, I and mean, we saw this, like have this sort of broader appeal. And like, so was, to, right. to watch that happen and, and was interesting and to sort of try and square that with what I had, with what I had experienced. And that was, you know, as a kid seeing them before I left DC was, yeah, it was always weird. And, you know, that public school thing is really interesting because I remember like going to the alternatives festival as a kid. And I have this distinct memory. I don't know, Matt, if you remember this of being like, like I think Fugazi was playing and we, but before we were like across the street at like a corner store, you know, buying like oh my Cheetos God, or something. Yeah. And like, we were being little teenage <laughs> brats and like Guy was in there and kind of looked over at us. and was like, come on, guy. Like, I don't know what he said, but he kind of just like sort of shook his head. And like, I just remember being so ashamed and just being like, <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, this is like buried in my psyche. I remember this so vividly. It was like at the, CVS that used to be across yeah. Newpont Circle. We were with another friend of ours who was a little wilder. Yeah. He was buying orange juice because you would notice these things. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. and it, I remember, yeah, being so so mortified and yeah. so ashamed. Yeah, I've yeah. distinctly like that's that's stuck with me all these years. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 funny. I also remember like you know being really little, and I think uh, it must have been before the first record came out. Like, and I knew you know, from reading a Maxim Rock and Roll or something that, that they had gone and toured in England at an appeal session. And I remember going into Yesterday and Today uh, Records out in Rockville and buying something, and Emakai worked there. And I remember being so nervous, like, just, and, and being like, but wanted, really wanted to talk to him and being like, so how, like, how how was England? Or like something, you know, but kind of like having this, like, very childlike, you know, nervousness, um, which was admiration, you know, which was respect, which was like, there, I ha- I'm so lucky to have this model of like a way to be a man or an adult that actually is kind of not probably not the worst guide, you no. know, like, yeah. so, but I do remember being at a party in LA, maybe in 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less. And like, 
It's a giant party full of all different kinds of people, and like waiting room came on, and everybody went nuts. And it was yeah. like, you know, people from all over the world, and it was like the equivalent of like Freebird coming on somewhere else. And I remember <laughs> so vividly being like, man, I remember the first time I ever heard this song, and it was the most exciting thing I ever heard because I'd just seen them live, and I bought the cassette, and like I listened to my mom's car, and it was like I listened to every millisecond intently. And it was this weird disconnect of this is so intimate to like my being, you know, because it was so formative for me. Right. Then to um, share it with all those people, a, yeah. Which is fine, but it's also a classic rock hit in a way, which is so strange. Yeah. To uh, to dip back into the song for a second, I had I found a few references throughout the lyrics that uh, maybe you guys caught. First, uh, and and it's an open question whether this is an intentional reference uh, right off the bat, but uh, the whole thing about I had a name, now I'm a number, it really echoes to me. There's a quote that is most famously attributed to Joseph Stalin. Uh, He apparently said in a speech, uh, it was reported as saying, if only one man dies of hunger, that is a tragedy. If millions die, that's only statistics. So that became sort of a very famous quote, and I... I feel like Ian might be purposely echoing that. Something else... Interesting. This this is a reference that uh, pr- probably after a certain generation, maybe almost nobody gets, but there was a vaudeville performer named Will Rogers, and um, he, like, he had this catchphrase, uh, all I know is what I read in the papers, where he, he sort of like, he almost had like a, you know, old-timey um, Johnny Carson, David Letterman talk show host kind of monologue on the news of the day, and he would come out, he'd like be dressed as a cowboy, just twirling his lasso, and he'd be like, well, what, what am I going to talk about? I ain't got anything funny to say. All I know is what I read in the papers. And then he'd rattle off some topical jokes. Um, so I, f- I feel like that has to have been intentional, but um, maybe little picked up on. Well, yeah, and you, you sometimes wonder, too, uh, with uh, this that process of songwriting, like I, I think sometimes these things are like they they leak in, they seep in, you know. So it's like yeah. it, it maybe not even intentional. Maybe sort of like it's somewhere in the back of of, of Makai's head and then comes out there. But, you know, I mean that's been because I've had that experience with things too, which is interesting. There's also um, the line "down by law." I'm not sure if this is was also just like a common expression in any way, but it was a 1986 Jim Jarmusch film, "Down by Law." Apparently, apparently right. Tom Waits was in it. I've never seen it, but um, yeah, I remember that movie. There's also a, an LA yeah, band called Down by Law, who's uh, apparently they they <laughs> had their first show like a month before Repeater came out. Um, so something in the air, maybe. I will say about Down by Law that I've always sort of thought that that was like a came out of hip hop, like like it was sort of like I I don't oh yeah I, like. Not, Wasn't that I, like a Schooly D record called that? That's what I'm saying. Like I thought it was could be traced back to like some classic rap song, but I don't, I don't, I can't come up with it right now. You know? Oh, but. Wild Style Down by Law. Mm. Is that, but, yeah. Uh, oh, actually, uh, MC Sean, 1987 had a record called Down by Law. Well, well, okay. <laughs> it's, this so gets deeper. I mean, th- th- that's interesting. Yeah. I also noticed something when I was sort of reading. I pulled up the lyrics and was looking at them just now. And I've always uh, noticed in the song, but not necessarily thought about it. It's not anyone we know, only about ourselves. You know, and thought it was kind of more of like a lyrical device. But actually, it's quite brilliant when you read it. So, it's not anyone. 
you know, yeah. like it's not even a person. Yeah. yeah and yeah. then the next line is, we know only about ourselves. And I really love the way that works two ways in a sense. Me too. Yeah, um, I was thinking about that. Yeah. I was, I was also thinking about uh, kind of a tangent, but the line after, you know, what we read in the paper, it says, don't you know, ink washes out easier than blood on a metaphorical level. I guess that's talking about it's much easier to forget something if you just read it in the paper than if you actually like are you know know the person who was killed um but on a literal level there's no way that's true right ink washing out easier than blood <laughs> um i tried to i tried to like uh, google this but i ended up thinking like if i search too much about getting blood stains out of clothes i'll end up on some kind of list but <laughs> i thought you said I, I thought you said you were you tried testing it yourself. <laughs> like maybe you t- <laughs> cut yourself and no i'm just imagining if you if you drop a you know a pint of blood on the carpet and a bu- pint of ink on the carpet in another location i'm gonna say the blood's gonna be easier to clean up but this is just my theory yeah. i mean that's that's powerful i mean you know that's extremely powerful on some level in terms of like you know dehumanizing the other you know, I mean, that on some level, actually, the the abstracted reading about it, you know what I mean? Like, actually, on some level, it does what, like, metaphorically does wash out easier than the, the blood of another human. Yeah. I mean, to me, I, I find that right. really powerful. Right. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just uh, thought it would be due diligence to actually find out the answer, but I'm, I'm not sure. If anyone out there is an expert, please... Please chime in with us. <laughs> I mean, one of the other just sort of like things that we didn't like, we, we sort of touched on or maybe earlier is, uh, I mean, one of the weirdest things about this record, I remember when it came out, was just like, huh, this is a really, really particular way of recording Fugazi. And I don't think it's really true on any of the other records. I always found it kind of like maybe trebly and kind of like just very different. And I could never entirely put my finger on it, but it always felt like Repeater was the one track where like something really broke through that like it was kind of like there was like a little bit of a i don't know kind of like a surface over the record that kind of dulled it and mm-hmm. somehow like kind of like maybe because of you know the sort of power of kind of all of these layers of meaning that are happening and the sort of like passion and integrity of the song it wasn't kind of compromised by that mm-hmm. at all and to this day it's still kind of like that for me uh may- maybe shut the door is a little bit like that but in general it was always struck that the no, no, the record really lost something vibrant just in the the recording of it. But I don't know if other people feel that way. Well, you you had said you'd been because I mean at that point you'd been seeing some of these songs live probably more than like I had, for example. So there's there, there's always that you develop a relationship with 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 songs like I think live, and then you know they they show up on a record and they're never quite exactly the way you you experience them initially so there's always that sort of hurdle to get over but i guess you're saying that in particular this record has that feel i, I know i can see what you mean yeah well i mean and and like i mean i remember in the year before this we used to go see them we'd like take a tape recorder you know and like most of the time like you wouldn't get a very good recording out of it but you could kind of like go back and like blueprint you could go back and listen to and still really hear it you know and kind of how it worked yeah but um i think i i guess i guess sort of what i was thinking of is it's interesting because I don't remember what the next album after this is. Steady Diet, maybe? Yeah. Or yeah. Get on the Kill Taker. Like, it seems like at that point, then they more self-consciously started to, like, play with, like, the recording studio as, like, a a technology, right? And here it's kind of in between, where it's, like, the first, the two EPs, and, you know, are kind of recorded in a way that are more, like, you know, kind of classic, like, inner ear, like, hardcore recording. 
then this one always kind of like stood out to me. And then after this, it's like, okay, they're like really doing art in the studio and they're recording not as documentation, but they're actually doing like a, you know, the studio becomes like an active part of the artistic process. Although that said on this track, um, interesting choice that they make for Ian's vocals, which are like sort of like very MIDI, like, uh, like telephone quality sounding, um, as as sort of an effect. Yeah, I was thinking that yeah. those, when I was listening to it earlier today, I was thinking about, like, in, in some ways, there's certain things like that that kind of date it. Like, that seems like a, ve- like a, a very sort of like, like 90s choice to do that with the vocals. But, but somehow, like, and I think this speaks to what maybe what, what Matt was saying, like, somehow, somehow the song like transcends that and yeah. it still feels like, a, you know, doesn't feel dated in a certain way. Yeah, not at all. I think, um, I think where yeah, th- there's something a little dated about that. But I, I think the the real benefit of that is somehow it makes it so much better when he screams repeater at the very end, like that yeah. that effect on the vocal. It works really well with that particular part. So, and just, he's got the clean vocal at the end too. Like there's one in like I think the right speaker. Yeah, like he doubles it. Yeah. Speaking of live versions. There, I saw one or two where when he does that repeater scream at the very end, uh, whoever is doing sounds would catch it with like a delay effect or something. So he'd just like oh, scream, yeah. he'd be like, repeater, repeater, repeater. Right. And it sounds, that sounds awesome. really awesome. I'll, uh, I'll put a link to one of those in the show notes for, li- for uh, yeah, I saw that. podcast listeners. I mean, that, that was another like kind of cool thing I always thought about them was that they really worked. I don't remember the guy's name, but they worked with, um, they really worked with one engineer, right? For their live shows. Well, it was, it was Joey P up until it was, uh, Nick Pelichotto kind of took over. Oh, okay. But I always thought that was cool that they had these, like, you know, they had this alliance that kind of extended beyond the band. Yeah. You know, like the guy who would dance with them or Amy Pickering and stuff. And But I, the other thing about Peter I was just thinking is, is like, you know, because of some of that sort of like, oh, Ian McKay is anti-slam dancing. Like, a lot of people never notice they're really funny, you know? So, like, right. I still think Walkin' Syndrome is, like, one of the funniest song titles I've ever heard. <laughs> and, like, um, there's something about that in Repeater that's, like, dead serious, but they're really playing. You know, like, they're really, really, like, kind of, like artistically experimenting and there's just like freedom to it and it just to me still holds up like 30 years later you know where i can still really feel that sense of like they're experimenting it's just fantastic experimentalism you know yeah well baseline too is is uh i mean it's like it's really like it's like relentless and it's in a very impressive way you know throughout most of that song until the very end and then he does this whole other complicated thing in that end part which is really yeah it becomes unexpectedly sexy right at that very end thing (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's a nice classic joe what does it go in what does it go into again i can't remember the track joe number one oh brendan number one does it okay yeah that's an excellent segue well speaking of you know how well this holds up and how we like it uh, I think the time has come to talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Every episode of this podcast, I ask my guests if you can conceive of the entire Fugazi catalog as a spectrum of one star to five stars in quality. Um, what do you think you would give to the song Repeater? Um, let me go to you first, Matt. Oh, it's a solid five. I mean, it's it's... It's really one of my favorite songs, probably of all time. Boom. What do you think, Hans? Um, I was going to say four, 
I mean, I think it's amazing, but I guess like if it's if five is in the top, there might be some songs further on in their career that that uh, that stand above it. But yeah, I'll give it a four. What songs? What songs? Um, well, you know, uh, you know, it's I don't know. I've been listening back to In on the Kill Taker and Red Medicine recently, and there's a there's a there's a handful, particularly on Red Medicine. There's a handful of songs, not a handful, but there's some songs on there like, I mean, Bed for the Scraping or um, oh, yeah. Birthday Party, where. I mean, in some ways, like a song like Bed for the Scraping is almost like a, a furthering of kind of what they're doing in this, in Repeater, in some ways. You know, it has that kind of like, that maniacal kind of like repeating guitar thing and and, and Ian sort of kind of almost but rapping I, over it or I mean, something. I totally, like, I agree with you and I'm, I'm very generous. There's probably a lot I'd give fives to and Bed for the Scraping is probably one of my favorite songs also. But, um... I think one thing that's kind of cool about this, and you and I talked about this a little bit, Hans, is like there's always kind of this weird, you know, like if you look at, say, Minor Thread and Rights of Spring, or if you look at, you know, Embrace and One Last Wish, like they feel really different, right? Like they feel like, you know, there's this Ian Mackay thing that's like very kind of like a storyteller, and then there's this sort of like new romantic thing on on the Kipachado side. And sometimes, like on different records, you sort of feel like they go back and forth between those, and mm-hmm. sometimes it comes together. But yeah. here, like, I don't hear any of that. Like, it's like, it's sort of like the whole machine is working together really well. And I, yeah. there are songs that I like that fall into either of those categories. Like, Rend It, you know, is a great song. Right. But um, I like, I like, really like that about this, where it's sort of like these two, you know, figures, I guess I see in really different ways. Um, the way they come together works so perfectly. And really the whole organism of the the, the band, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is impressive. It's particularly when you sort of think about, this was early on in sort of Guy's, I mean, this was the first record he was playing guitar on, right? So it's early on in his sort of, and I, I feel, I, I sort of feel like Guy, he, I kind of feel for him because he sort of had to work his way into this band, you know, in those early days and stuff. And like, I, I think that must have been, I can imagine that must have been challenging. And so, yeah, it is kind of impressive to, to see how that, that came together in this song. Yeah. I think uh, I think I'm gonna go with the uh, 4.5 right down the middle, and right. I, I was like, <laughs> I think I, uh, I I sometimes have a slightly different impression as I'm going into doing one of these episodes before I like re-listen to the song with fre- fresh ears, and uh, I was surprised at how much I liked it this time. It's uh, it's got this great energy. I think like in my memory, the the squealing guitar was like the main thing, um, but I. On listening back, I don't think it's the main thing. I think it's the the drums and the bass and the the yeah. the startling turn towards melody with that little jangly Johnny Marr thing in the chorus and right. um, the 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 sort of catchy delivery of one two three repeater. That's such a classic live show sing along moment. And um, yeah, and, yeah, and you know, and even that underneath all that. Uh, it's a song with a lot of meaning that rewards uh, a little bit of a close reading. So, yeah. Well, and it, it it also really, I mean, it just for me, it really, it immediately puts me back into the experience of being a kid trying to make sense of Washington, D.C., a white kid trying to make sense of Washington, D.C. in this time. It was so segregated, and there's this kind of just like horrific aspect, and you sort of move through the city. I mean, it just, 
it just takes me back in a second to that. So maybe I have a, maybe my extra 0.5 is that emotional, <laughs> you know, location. Yeah. Fair enough. Sense. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll read off a few, uh, a few listener comments from the alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page where I ask people what they think of these songs. Um, uh, Colin Max says, I'll probably get crucified for this, but it's actually not a favorite of mine. The start-stop in the last two-thirds is amazing, though. Something about the processed vocals, the snare sound, and the dentist drill guitar sound just doesn't do it for me. Um, on the other hand, uh, Bradford Reed Goodwin says, I love this song so much that I'm afraid to talk about it. It's like being in the presence of a god. The little touches, uh, the guitar feedback, <laughs> the double tracking, the snare sound, the rhythm add up to so much on top of the poignant lyrics. It's perfect. Uh, Dallin McDougall says the driving Joe slash Brendan rhythm alone is enough to put this in the upper tier of Fugazi songs, but then throw in all the insane guitar on top of that stops and starts the lyrics you can shout along to and baby, you've got a stew going. And, uh, he, <laughs> he also says, I will also cop to the fact that being a Texan and loving Tex-Mex, there has been a time or two I chant out one, two, three fajitas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that will be in my head anytime I hear that word in the future, Dallin. Thank you for that. Yeah, it may have just... <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, and Jason Dick says, I love the song. Um, the song is very built around the studio with the distorted vocals, crazy snare, and the guitars are feeding back so perfectly. I don't really care for live versions of Repeater. The guitars are never quite the same. And, yeah, that's interesting. Going back to the, uh, the uh, article I referenced earlier... I have one more quote uh, from that where uh, it says, Pichotto's guitar sound was heavily dependent on the physical interactions between his guitar and his amp, so the space could seriously affect the song. Quote, sometimes it would depend on the room. It depends on feedback, and rooms have different acoustic properties. Somehow soundproofing, so when we played that song, you get a skeletal feeling like you can't find the heart of the song, says Mackay. Um, so, yeah, cool. I, I guess that it's a song that... Rewards listening to different performances of it, seeing when yeah. when it comes alive, when it falls kind of flat, which is yeah. but that's all part a, of the fun. It's also quite interesting. I mean, it plays into too how like this is that moment when like you know New Music Express when we started writing about Fugazi and the shows got so big that like the kind of smaller rooms, you know, that like we saw them in maybe earlier, um, you know, they still played some of those, but for the most part, the shows got so much bigger that you have to wonder if some of the earlier songs like couldn't couldn't translate in the same way yeah you know yeah well guys uh let me give you a chance uh if you have any to do some plugs whether that be something that uh you're working on uh, in a professional capacity or an amateur capacity or if you just want people to be able to find you online somewhere um what do you say matt hans matt you want to take it first uh yeah so i'm uh i'm actually one of the i live in baton rouge because i'm finishing a phd at lsu but i also founded last year with my fiance a space called yes we cannibal um which is a kind of experimental art and social research space and we do salon events on twitch and live every sunday four to six yes we cannibal.org and um uh, actually i would say quite recently we had a discussion about the space and i found myself referencing Ian Mackay from many years ago to my partner and talking about how it's always about what's happening now in experimental space. So that's the big plug I would I would put out there. So thank you. Right on. Thank you. Anything for you, um, Hans? 
Well, the thing that I've been working on most recently is uh, a band called Street Fruit, and we just finished a record. But I don't have we're we have not we have no presence online right now, so that's uh, not something that I can offer, unfortunately. But that's kind of like what I've had my my um, fingers in lately. Um, I guess you know if someone wanted to reach me at, at my my email is hansdobrads at gmail dot com, but. <laughs> if you have any questions that's where you can find me <laughs> alright well thanks for coming on guys uh, It's I always love a perspective from uh, from DC Fugazi old timers who were sort of there at the beginning um, so cool to hear from you guys uh, I wish I could have been there with you it sounds like some amazing times people can reach me at Fugazi A to Z at gmail.com and if you want you can join that Facebook group I mentioned it's just called the Alphabetical Fugazi and I'll be collecting your comments there for the songs that we have left um, yeah we're, we're in the R's we're sort of getting dare I say close to the end so you know strike while the iron's hot tell me what you think about the songs I have coming up and I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing Returning the Screw until then keep your eyes open 